All right, good morning. How y'all doing? Well, that's good. <laughs> I don't know how to put this thing. Uh, anyways, uh, as Josh read, we're going to be today in Matthew 11, uh, verse 7 through 15. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, our text today, and really for the rest of chapter 11, Matthew's going to be giving us these summaries of teachings that Jesus gave as he continued to preach in various towns throughout the region of Galilee. These are Matthew's uh, cliff notes from these sermons at this particular moment of Jesus's ministry. And of course, Jesus continued to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and like he's been preaching, he's going to continue to heal people, cast out demons, you know, all of these things he's been doing. But as we've gone through this journey uh, in Matthew uh, in the whole book of Matthew, we've seen for the last few chapters that there is an increasing amount of hostility uh, toward Jesus. He's got some enemies, in particular the, the scribes uh, and the religious leaders uh, like the Pharisees. They've begun to oppose Jesus's ministry, and they're going around saying all sorts of stuff to discredit Jesus, that he's a drunkard, that he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. They're even saying that his power comes from Satan rather than God. And so in chapter 11, Matthew starts to draw our attention to a few of the responses that Jesus began to give in order to, number one, counter his opponent's claims, and number two, to encourage his followers who might have been stressed out as they heard these claims. And this morning, we're jumping right in the middle of Jesus uh, responding to a particular claim from his critics that we saw a little bit of last week. We're just continuing today. But before we talk about it, we, we need some backstory uh, for any of this to make sense. And that is that for 400 years, Israel didn't hear from a single prophet. 400 years, there was no one speaking to the people as the mouthpiece of God. And the last prophecy that they had heard was from the prophet Malachi, who had ended his book of prophecy with God saying to Israel, Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Israel was promised that there would be this great and awesome, that word is really like dreadful, it's awesome in a negative sense, there'd be this great and dreadful day of the Lord. And not just Malachi, but practically all the Old Testament prophets looked forward to this coming day. And on that day, the Messiah was going to come, and this man who somehow called God with us, this Messiah would come, and he would judge the wicked, and he would lift up and renew the strength of the righteous. That would be this great and awesome day. It would be great for the righteous. It would be dreadful for the wicked. But before the day of the Messiah, before that day of the Lord came, you would see a prophet like Elijah would come and prepare God's people for the arrival of the Messiah. And he would tell them, he would call them to repentance. He would tell them to repent of their sins and prepare for the coming of this Messiah. So that's the backstory. But then quickly turn to Isaiah 42, 7. And this will help us understand the certain claim, this criticism coming from Jesus' criticism and a doubt, uh, Jesus' critics and a doubt that comes from his followers. Isaiah 42, 7. Isaiah writes that the Messiah will come to open the eyes of the blind. We've seen that, right? And to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So all of that to say, remember last week, John the Baptist, who everyone thought is this Elijah, 
He might be this prophet Elijah, this, the first prophet in Israel in 400 years to speak. And he's announcing the coming of the Messiah. People are excited. There he is, Jesus, this guy, he's the Messiah. Where's John the Baptist as we began reading last week in Matthew 11? He's in prison. He's in a dungeon, sitting in darkness. And so this is the question on everyone's mind. If Jesus is really the Messiah, then why is this prophet, John the Baptist, this promised Elijah, sitting powerless in a prison? You know, the Messiah is supposed to come, and he's supposed to be getting God's people out of prison, not getting them thrown into prison. So that's the question on everyone's mind. Is this really the Messiah? Was John really this great promised prophet when he called us out into the wilderness and told us that this Jesus guy was the Messiah? Or is John just a crazy guy who knows how to stir up a crowd? So they have their doubts. And let's be honest, their doubts are understandable, right? Given the context, they're, they're at least relatable. We never doubt God when everything's going the way we expect. But when things don't go according to our plans, our expectations, that's when we doubt. You know, God, are you really all that you say you are? Is your word really something I can trust? Or is it just a bunch of antiquated scribbles from some crazy guys who know how to stir up a crowd? So Jesus takes time this morning to address the doubts of his critics and his followers and us as well. And he does this by clarifying precisely who John the Baptist is. By turning the crowd's expectations and their definitions of greatness on their heads. As the crowds consider John's circumstances and they, they see him in prison, they think, that doesn't seem like a great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus is going to challenge them to consider that maybe, just maybe, their understanding of greatness is the problem. He's going to challenge our understanding of greatness as well. Hopefully, we'll see. So to do that, we're going to consider three things. Uh, three things God's word is going to lead us to consider this morning. And that is the greatness that we seek, the greatness Jesus gives, which will force us to reckon with this question, are you willing to accept the greatness of Jesus? Are you willing to accept the greatness of Jesus? That's what we'll consider today. Let's pray, and then we'll get into uh, the passage. Father, we thank you this morning uh, for your grace, abundant grace to us. Uh, we stand, uh, as we sing these songs, uh, we stand as sinners. Uh, and we rejoice in the gift of a Savior, the Messiah. So we thank you that you are a gracious God, merciful to the weak, to the lowly, to the humble. I pray that you would continue to sanctify us, continue to make us even more so weak, lowly and humble for your glory because in our weakness you are glorified we praise you this morning for saving sinners it's in christ's name that we pray amen let's begin with matthew 11 verses 7 through 9 it says as they went away so who's they john's disciples from last week they came john sent them and he said they said uh, are you the messiah jesus or should we look for another Jesus answered them. He said, look at all the things that the Bible said the Messiah would do. I'm doing all those things. Go back and tell John that. So they went away. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. Remember, he's going just like he sent his disciples out to do. He commissioned the 12, go from town to town preaching. He's also going from town to town preaching. So as he interacts with these crowds in various towns, he begins to 
bring this teaching into his overall scope of teaching. He began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Those are weird questions. Okay, Jesus asked the crowd these rhetorical questions, right? He already knows the answers that they're going to give. He's not polling the audience, trying to hear their opinion. Instead, he's forcing them to consider the greatness they seek, okay? Because I'll spoil the ending. They're not necessarily seeking the thing that Jesus has come to give. They were seeking the great and awesome day of the Lord, which in their minds meant the day when the nation of Israel would be lifted up, they would be renewed, and the Romans and all the unrighteous people they didn't like would be utterly destroyed. They were seeking a, a change in their circumstances, to no longer be under Roman rule, but instead to get to be the ruling class. They wanted a revolution to finish out on top of the order. That, in their minds, was the greatness of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Great for them, dreadful for Rome. That was their hope. And their hope was a change of circumstances. And this is true of all of us, the human race. The greatness we seek, this is the first point we're considering, the greatness we seek tends to be circumstantial greatness. Circumstantial greatness. We all are after the betterment of our circumstances. To be on top of the world, whatever world we think is worth being at the top of, that's our solution to everything difficult we face. If only my circumstances were different, if only I had more money, if only I had better friends, if only I had a better job, a better spouse, or a spouse to begin with, if only I had a better reputation, if only I had a body free of disease, if only I was free of anxiety and depression, if only my circumstances were different, everything in my life would be great. The greatness we seek tends to be circumstantial greatness, and that's what the crowds were after as well. Notice that would be why when they see John's circumstances looking pretty bleak, stuck in prison, that they would begin to doubt the greatness of his message. It doesn't seem to be a message that leads to what they're seeking. And so Jesus asks these questions and begins to unravel their understanding of greatness and hopefully ours as well this morning. So look at verse 7. Jesus asks, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So context, John preached way out in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, in the desert, which, by the way, was something Isaiah promised. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah would promise this coming Elijah would do, preach in the wilderness. And many of the people in this region had gone out into the wilderness. They'd made the trek to hear him preach, which, by the way, the trek was like 30 hours of walking, okay, out into the desert. And that's quite the commitment. But they did it gladly. Why? Because they believed that John was this prophet announcing the day of the Lord. They went to hear from Elijah. They went to hear about the greatness that would soon be laid at their feet. And Jesus knows this, but he asks, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The Jordan River which is sort of the center for much of John's ministry in the wilderness, has reeds all up and down its banks. And so in one sense, Jesus is asking, did you go for a nature walk? 
Is that why you went out to the wilderness to see some reeds? You were just going out there to waste your time? You know, of course not, they'd say. But that's not all that's meant here. There's somewhat a, a poetic double meaning uh, to this question because a reed shaken by the wind was an idiom in the ancient world. It was a saying in the ancient world used to describe someone who's fickle, specifically a person that holds their convictions loosely and who's blown this way and blown that way by popular opinion and the changing of circumstances. They don't, st- they don't stand firm in their faith or convictions. They just, they just go wherever the wind blows. They're a reed shaken in the wind. And so the prophets of the Old Testament, like Elijah, remember who mocked the, the followers of Baal? Or Nathan, who rebuked King David to his face? Or Daniel, who prayed out his window through the king? Though the king had uh, forbid that prayer, prophets are never reeds shaken in the wind. And neither was John. Just think a couple of stories. Matthew 3, 7 through 10. These Pharisees and these Sadducees wanted to get baptized, wanted to receive the baptism of John. And so this is, anytime anyone asks you for a baptism, this is probably not what you should say to them. But this is what John said. When he saw the many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, (laughs) who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Does that sound like a reed shaken in the wind? No, he's firm in his convictions. Not to mention, do you know why John was thrown into prison? Do you remember that from last week? Because he condemned the ruler of his region, King Herod's marriage. King Herod had told his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, he said, why don't you divorce my brother so we can get married? And John condemned it. He rebuked it because it went against Moses' law. He openly rebuked Herod, so Herod threw him in prison. So the people didn't walk 30 hours into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind. They went to see a prophet. Like the prophets of old, holding up God's word, calling people to repent no matter what pressures he faced. And they hoped he would also show them the way to greatness as he announced the great and awesome day of the Messiah. Jesus just continues the same point in verse 8. He says, what then did you go out to see? So not a reed shaken in the wind. What then? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And the people would say, no. You know, they didn't go see a guy in soft clothing. They didn't want to go out to see someone in soft or luxurious clothing because John was famous for wearing rough clothing. Matthew 3, 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His clothes were made of camel's hair, which would be a very rough Material. It's certainly not something anyone in a king's palace would wear. They would prefer softer fabrics, wool or linen. So no, obviously they didn't go to see someone in soft or fine clothing. But why does Jesus make such a big deal about his clothes? Why does he point out what he's wearing? That's a weird thing to hone in on. Well, because there was another prophet who wore rough and not soft clothes. Second Kings 1, 7 through 8, there's this mystery prophet who tells these men 
some bad news of things that are going to happen to them. And they report back to their ruler what this mystery man said. And so the ruler says to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the ruler said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So the people didn't go out to the desert to hear from a man in soft clothing. They went to hear from Elijah. They went to hear from a prophet like Elijah. Because it was this Elijah-like prophet that Malachi promised would bring on the greatness that they were seeking. And now notice one more thing here in verse 8. He says then, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Here Jesus kind of pushes back on their doubts. Because remember, people are doubting that John is really this promised prophet because basically he's in prison. His circumstances don't look all that comfortable. They don't look blessed by God, okay? He's not tweeting that out. It doesn't make sense to them that the Messiah, this mighty king of Israel, would allow his herald, his messenger, to be stuck in a prison. But Jesus, in a sense, is saying, if I wouldn't let my messenger be uncomfortable in prison, then why would I let his entire ministry be an uncomfortable one in the wilderness? Why would I allow him to suffer in rough clothes and to suffer a life living in the desert and the dangers of wild animals in the wilderness and suffer a diet of locusts and honey? That's what John, that was his food. If I would do that, then why would, I, why would he not be in prison? Like, what did you expect? This is who you went to see, not someone living in a king's palace. If you wanted to be led by someone living in comfort and in luxury, you should have gone and seen King Herod. You would look for someone in a king's palace, but you, you didn't look for any of that. You wanted nothing to do with that. You went out to the wilderness far away from the comfort and the corrupt luxury of Israel's leaders to see a lowly and uncomfortable prophet. And you thought, this looks pretty good to me. What changed? What changed? Where's the doubt coming from? Because what they were looking for from John and from John's declared Messiah was a change in circumstance. They thought John was their ticket to better circumstances, prosperity, no more paying taxes to Rome, etc. But now the circumstances of John's life weren't looking so great. The crowds liked, they liked identifying with him at first, like, oh, look, that's nice. He's suffering with us. He's identifying with our pain. That's awesome. He looks very profitly. We love that. But then when his circumstances didn't get better, but instead they actually got worse, that's when they doubt because they wanted circumstantial greatness, and John was only losing his. That's what wounded their faith, and often that's what wounds our faith. Every doubt comes when the circumstances we're seeking aren't as great as we thought they should be. That's when we look up and we go, what are, we, what are you doing, God? Like, where are you in this? You know, this can't be right. Have I been duped? Have I, am I following the wrong God, the wrong faith? We sort of live in this culture with the mentality that whenever we're unhappy and things aren't as great as we would like them to be circumstantially, we've probably just purchased the wrong product. We need to just shop elsewhere or find something new. But Jesus didn't come to make your life more comfortable or to get you out of difficult circumstances. In fact, if anything, Jesus shows us that God works powerfully in difficult circumstances. That's what this whole Holy Week is about. God works powerfully through difficult circumstances, like the cross, 
So what if you're suffering? Whatever it is you're suffering is the greatest circumstance for you to be in. What if it is actually for your good? Because that circumstance is tearing your life out from your grip and forcing you to entrust your life to someone better, to God, the sovereign creator of the universe. What if God is sanctifying you? My, my point is, if you're just seeking better circumstances, you should look elsewhere. Because that's not what Jesus has come to give. In fact, more likely, he came to decrease your circumstances so that he may increase your dependence on him and your, the life that you derive from him and him alone. Are you willing to accept that sort of Messiah? That's the question before the crowds. And that's the question John's wrestling with from prison. And that's the question before us this morning. Let's continue. Let's move on to verses 9 through 11. Jesus says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There's a lot to unpack there, okay? This is the pain of the preacher, because I don't get to unpack everything. Just got to gloss over it. Uh, but Jesus here, he's validating the ministry of John. He says, John is indeed the prophet y'all thought he was. It's like this big reveal. He is a prophet. John is the first prophetic voice in 400 years. Y'all were right. You nailed it. Yay. Good job. Yes, I tell you. Jesus says he is a prophet. But not only that, he adds he's more than a prophet. How so? Jesus says in verse 10, well, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus takes a quote out of Malachi, significant, the, the last prophet in Israel before John the Baptist. And he says, John's the one that Malachi was talking about. Specifically, John is the messenger sent to prepare the way of the Messiah, the one who comes right before the Messiah comes, which means that he's not just a prophet. He's the last prophet of the old covenant. He's the last prophet before the coming of the kingdom of heaven. When John steps on the scene, there's a little more excitement than any of the other prophets because he marks the end of the prophetic age of expectation and marks the beginning of an age of declaration. The kingdom is here. It is now rather than to come. So have you ever been to like a college graduation? I'm sure high school graduations are like this, but they're not as big as colleges. They're so boring because uh, they take forever. I went to Texas A&M University, whoop, uh, and hundreds of people were a part of my graduation. And man, I don't know who you need to talk to who you can call or email, but graduation ceremonies are too long. They give you this program, and you like go through it, and they're like, this is how you're going to be tortured today. And it's like, there's people playing music. Like, there's like, oh, and now a presentation. And I was like, what? And then like every regent on the board has to say something, and they all say nothing, but they all say the same, you know, you guys will change the world. You're like, no one wanted to hear from you. Like, just go and let the people walk across the stage 
and be done. And so that's how I feel with uh, graduation ceremonies. I don't know how you feel. It's nice when, you know, you finally get to the back where all the names are listed and you're like, this is, this is what we are looking forward to. And every, you know, it's nice. You hear the families like clap for their people. And it's very sweet. Some people have like bigger families. And then like, you're like, I got to be louder than that family. Uh, so you go through this list. What happens when you finally get to the last name of that list? For me, we did our graduation ceremony in the college basketball uh, you know, stadium. Is that what you call it? A stadium? Arena. That's what you call it. It was full of people. And when we got to the last name, no one knows this poor girl. You know, she, Jackie, Elizabeth, Zyla. And everyone's like, ah, yeah, because she's the last one. You're done. You survived. You don't have to keep waiting. John is like that last name. He's the last name read among the prophets. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, which means the Messiah has arrived. John is the promised Elijah. Jesus will say that explicitly in a second, but he's just saying that already by calling uh, him exactly what Malachi has prophesied. That's what, what makes John more than a prophet. But not only that, John actually got to meet the one who he prophesied about. When Isaiah or Ezekiel are talking about the coming Messiah, they're going to be dead whenever the Messiah comes. The Messiah will come someday, and that'll be great someday. But John says the Messiah is coming, and then he gets to baptize him. For this reason, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. To no one else has such an honor been given to declare the Messiah's coming and then look the Messiah in the eyes. Now, I've not forgotten our three points, okay? We've only talked about one. (laughs) Uh, It's just a lot to explain. We talked about the greatness that we seek, circumstantial greatness, which isn't all it's cracked up to be. Now I want to talk about the greatness Jesus gives the greatness Jesus gives. Where in this passage do we see the greatness that Jesus gives, which contrasts the greatness that we tend to seek? Right there at the end of verse 11. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now Jesus isn't insulting John the Baptist here. That'd be a sick burn. That's not his point. Jesus as the Messiah, and therefore the king of the kingdom of heaven, says to be the lowest member of his kingdom is to be greater than the greatest person ever born. Among those born of women, there's risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That is the greatness that Jesus gives. But what does that mean? In order to better understand this, we have to look back at the passage in Malachi that Jesus referenced about John the Baptist in verse 10. It's a quote from Malachi 3, which, yes, talks about the messenger who would go before the Messiah to ready the people for his coming, but also look at what God says directly after the quote that Jesus referenced, Malachi 3, 1 through 2a. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. We heard that. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? That's a bit intimidating. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is coming, but who will be left standing? And the answer implied is no one. Nobody. Here's where the crowds got it wrong. They believed the Messiah would come and immediately get to work executing vengeance on the wicked, but what they didn't account for was the fact that they themselves were numbered among the wicked. They thought the Messiah would come to better their circumstances, exalt them over certain evildoers like the Romans, not recognizing that the Messiah was coming to execute vengeance on all wickedness, including their own. No one can endure the great and dreadful day unless he's free from wickedness, unless he has no wrongdoing that can be charged against him. In other words, the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to have right standing before God, to be righteous. And again, that's not new to us if we've, been, if we've been following along in Matthew. Jesus said much earlier in Matthew several times, it's just two times. Matthew 5.20, he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It says again, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you wicked, evil-doing people. So what you must do to enter the kingdom of heaven and to, and to actually be able to endure the day of the Lord's coming is to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees and a righteousness that looks like doing, not neglecting, the will of the Father who is in heaven. You must be that tall to enter the kingdom of heaven, and none of us are. I don't need to give you a scripture for you to recognize. You don't have a righteousness of your own. You don't do the will of the Father. You don't obey his commands. I don't need to give you scripture, but I will anyway. <laughs> Romans 3, 10 through 18. Paul says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Who will stand on that great and awesome day? Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is like a viper, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that's us. It's the description of all of us. Based on this, the great and awesome day of the Lord is not great or awesome day for us. It's only dreadful. We're the wicked that he comes to execute vengeance upon. We cannot endure the day of the Lord. None will be left standing. So notice when the Messiah comes, you don't need a change in circumstances. You need righteousness. That's what you need. You need righteousness and you need the vengeance of God that you deserve to somehow pass over you Otherwise, you won't be able to endure. So, if 
you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, what you need is someone to give you a righteousness that you do not have. You need someone to endure the vengeance that you couldn't. You need someone to give you the righteousness you do not have. You need someone to endure the vengeance that you couldn't. And that is the greatness that Jesus gives. Jesus, the promised Messiah, he came as John the Baptist promised he would, and God immediately got to work executing vengeance against the wicked. But the vengeance of God was poured out not on sinners, and it's not been poured out on you or on me. The vengeance of God he poured out on his son. The Messiah, first and foremost, bore the vengeance of God on behalf of sinners. And this wasn't some change in the script. Again, if only we'd read our Bibles. This was what God had promised through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, describing the Messiah, the coming Messiah that Isaiah died before he got to see. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 11. Man, I'm crying so much. It's insane. I'll make it through. It's a good thing to be emotional about. (laughs) Describing the Messiah again, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. As we'll remember this coming Friday, Jesus, as he died on a cross, carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. The vengeance of God was poured out on him, and out of his anguish, Jesus, the righteous one, the Messiah, made us to be accounted righteous and adopted us into his kingdom. This is the greatness that Jesus gives. Among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he John the Baptist pointed forward to the day when the kingdom of heaven would come and the vengeance of the Lord be poured out and the righteous would be lifted up. But we, even the weakest of us, with weak faith, filled with doubts, poor in spirit, we've been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. So to put it another way, though John was the greatest born among women, we have been born again. And we've been born into a new kingdom. We have been, we've received a greater birth and have been born into right standing before God through what Jesus has given. Finally, turn to verses 12 through 15. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him here. Now, this text is highly debated and has been debated by scholars for centuries because verse 12 has multiple ways that are very acceptable that you can translate it. Uh, and I actually disagree with the way that the ESV has translated it, but I could be completely wrong, okay? So don't freak out. <laughs> 
But there in verse 12, where it says, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, that's not actually what is written in Greek. Instead, it says, the kingdom of heaven violences. It violences, which obviously isn't a word in English, but it is in Greek. And here's the problem with English, all right, the limitation with English. In English, we have either active voice or passive voice. Active, you know, where the subject is doing the action, you know, Tim drives the car. Or passive, where the subject is receiving the action. The car is driven by Tim, okay? So the ESV has translated this in the passive voice. The kingdom of heaven has received violence. It has been violenced upon. The word suffered, though, isn't in there, uh, but it sounds good, so they had to add it in. Uh, and if it was translated, though, in the active, this would say, the kingdom of heaven has come violently or has forcefully entered. Okay? And so the question is, is the kingdom of heaven doing the violence or receiving it? Right? And in Greek, this word could mean either one. But in English, we have to pick one. And so different translations pick different ways of translating it. I know you might be thinking, it's got to be the, the kingdom of heaven is receiving the violence. Right? That makes sense, you know, that it suffered violence. That just sounds like the right answer because the Christian life and the kingdom experiences suffering. That does make sense until you look at Luke 16, 16, which uses the same word says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone violences his way into it. Everyone forces his way into it. So now, it's a good thing. It's a positive thing that's happening with the kingdom. The kingdom isn't being harmed. It's forcefully advancing as people with eagerness accept the gospel that is preached and enter the kingdom. So that passage in Luke and its similarities to our passage in Matthew, that combined with the fact that the passive voice is far less common than the active voice in the Greek language and a few other reasons that would make you yawn even more than these have, I believe that this should read more like this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Okay, that's the Tim edition. You can buy it, $55 a copy. I'm just kidding. Uh, that's the only thing different about it. <laughs> uh, been, it's been forcefully advancing, and the violent take it by force. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. John and all the prophets have pointed forward to a day when the kingdom of heaven would come. And since John the Baptist started preaching, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, well, the kingdom of heaven has indeed been advancing. Demons are cast out quite forcefully. And people are healed, and the poor have good news preached to them. The kingdom is advancing rapidly, forcefully, with strength. And yet opponents of the kingdom are attempting to take it and snatch it away. Violent men attempt to quell the advance. That's why John's in prison. Not because there's any defect in him. He is indeed the prophet of the Messiah. He's just in prison because violent people respond violently when, to what they see as rival kingdoms. Rivals to their circumstances, to their glory. And so Jesus, I think, is setting the stage here for all the events that are going to culminate in his death on a cross. What we're going to see is that the kingdom will continue to be preached as we read Matthew, and many will believe, but as the kingdom advances, so do what? The schemes of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Israel. They'll respond forcefully to the advance of the kingdom. And they already have. That's why John's in prison. 
So that's my interpretation. And then Jesus reiterates much of the, many of the points he's been making through our text this morning in verses 13 through 15. He says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, you know, all the prophets of the law, pointed forward to the coming of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus is declaring now is now here. And they pointed to Elijah, first coming, to announce the Messiah and prepare the way. Then verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is very clear. He is the Messiah. When he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he's saying, do you get what I'm saying? Can you connect the dots that I'm the Messiah? Jesus leaves no doubt. He's explicit. John is the promised Elijah. And if the promised Elijah comes to point Israel to the Messiah and prepare the way for the Messiah, and John says that Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus is the Messiah. If you're willing to accept it. Notice that. If you're willing to accept it. So back to our three points for this text. Jesus has shown us that the greatness we tend to seek is circumstantial and unsatisfying. We've seen that the greatness Jesus gives is his righteousness, right standing before God, taking the vengeance that we deserved. And in light of this, we must consider, are you willing to accept the greatness of Jesus? Are you willing to accept the greatness of Jesus, or will you respond forcefully against it? Because those are your options. You will either accept this gospel that's preached, that you need a righteousness that you do not have, and you need a savior to take the vengeance on himself because you could not bear it. You'll either accept that gospel, and it will violently and forcefully take over your entire life, or you will forcefully work against it and push against the gospel by pushing back against things like repentance and carving out for yourself protections to keep your life from being inconvenienced by the call Jesus has given to lay down your life. So John the Baptist was the promised Elijah who would go before the Messiah and prepare the way, which means he would pave the road that the Messiah would walk down, including laying down his life. And so, look, John was imprisoned under the authority of Herod, and then Herod gave to his, his stepdaughter the decision, what shall I do with John? And she said, kill him. And so John was executed. And what happens to Jesus? He's put in prison under the authority of Herod. And what does Herod do? He gives to the people the choice, what shall I do with Jesus? Kill him. Crucify him. This was the way the kingdom of heaven was forcefully advanced. It's a violent advancement. Are you willing to accept the gospel and let it completely take over and forcefully invade your life in this way, in the way that it invaded John's and the way that it invaded Jesus? Are you willing to walk the path that John prepared and Jesus walked? It's a reorienting of priorities. It's seeking the righteousness Jesus gives, good works, and obedience to his commands, obedience to his word, rather than simply chasing better circumstances in this life. Because you'll never be satisfied by a better reputation or a better house or a better anything because there's always something behind it that was even better. 
Especially because you can achieve all of this betterness, but in the day of the Lord, none of it will be left standing. Like Jesus preached to his disciples just a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 10, 38 through 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you willing to accept the greatness of Jesus by confessing that you have no greatness apart from him? Giving your life to him, or will you push back his advancement over your life? I want to spend time considering this as we prepare ourselves to take communion this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue to consider the greatness of Jesus in the provision of his body and his blood. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you for the gospel that was proclaimed for centuries, though we did not hear it. We thank you for your patience uh, with wrestling sinners. Thank you that you wrestle with mankind and that you, that you sanctify us. God, we thank you that you you show us yourself, that we may know you, that we may uh, be called your sons and daughters. What grace. I pray that we would not push against your demands on our life, that your kingdom would forcefully advance through our lives, in this church, in the city of McKinney, throughout the world. Only you can do this. I pray, God, we would not stand in the way, that we would not violently respond as men like Herod did. We don't like what we heard, and so we push back. We don't like what that would do to our circumstance. We push back. I pray we wouldn't do that. Father, I pray that you would sanctify us, pour out your spirit, that we may follow your commands. Amen.